I mean, I've actually never heard of anybody calling their list of followers. In poker, you know, um, the feedback loop is almost too fast. It's hard for you to know if you should continue pursuing poker, whether you're winning or losing. Um, you just have to keep playing. The user base is, you know, conditioned and primed already to right. expect to be mistreated. I love poker, and so um, I wouldn't spend all this time um, just out of the goodness of my heart if I didn't love poker. So I certainly love poker, but so much of it is just going downhill. Hey, everybody. Phil here. Um, today on the podcast, I am joined by uh, someone who is, in a lot of ways, anonymous. Um, this person posts uh, on Twitter uh, frequently, well, on and off, <laughs> we'll get into that, under the pseudonym Rachel Lee's Thinks. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to you as RL, by the way. RL is, um, well, well, we'll get into your, your background a little bit, but from what I can tell, um, you know, poker enthusiast who's who's been a, a serious poker player to a degree for a very long time and um, someone who is well-traveled in the world of tech startups. Um, would that be a fair brief summary, RL? Yeah, that's perfect, Phil. Cool. So uh, since, uh, you know, some of my viewers might not follow you on Twitter or be on Twitter, um, could you give a, a bit of a background with regards to, you know, your interest in poker, um, yeah, starting from that, your interest in poker and your and your poker journey of sorts. Sure, absolutely. Um, feel free, feel free to uh, interject anytime uh, because you know I'll tr I'll try to be brief, but you know I am covering a whole lifetime and so yeah. or you know three decades. Um, I've played poker. Uh, first of all, I'm a man, and we can get into why. Uh, the handle I chose was uh, Rachel Lee's. That was a big mistake in hindsight. Um, but it's sort of funny, too. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm a man. Um, I'm in my early 50s is how I usually leave it. Um, I've spent roughly 30 years in uh, tech, mostly startups, but also publicly traded companies, large corporations in tech. Um, I've also spent about 30 years playing poker. So my indoctrination into poker came through a uh, girlfriend of all things um, back when I was in uh, college. And so, <laughs> so my life started um, similarly to a lot of other people. Um, I was sort of lost. Um, I was sort of distraught. I, I had some issues at home with my parents. Um, and I went to a, you know, elite, elite, uh, university and, um, kind of my future was laid out for me, uh, by my parents, um, by my father, by my, uh, father, uh, specifically. And things sort of went downhill and I picked up on poker, uh, played it for about three years. The third year is when, uh, things started, uh, started to change and, uh, and um, I found myself lost again. And through serendipity and some luck and some unforeseeable events, I ended up at this uh, small tech company. It wasn't a startup. It had been around since, uh, I think, the late 70s. And um, we're in the mid-90s now. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so anyways, to fast forward, um, I had a choice of either partially um, quitting poker or quitting entirely. And I went with the latter and cold turkey just stopped and dug myself into my work. And many years passed and, you know, the job became a potential career and the career turned into a lifetime. Um, and so I didn't pick up poker again until I started playing high stakes poker with a lot of uh, VCs and executives and CEOs uh, in private games around uh, Silicon Valley, Northern California, uh, Atherton, Saratoga. Back then, the, the big games were in uh, Black, Black Hawk and Danville mm -hmm. in the East Bay. Um, and that's probably around the time I got to know a lot of the names in poker, if you will. You know, the celebrity names, the well-known names. Uh, in fact, even you um, as OMG Clay Aiken. And so, you know, more than playing poker for a living, which I had done during stage one, um, I was a sort of uh, uh, a good recreational player who was also a fan. And this coincided with the peak of my own career. This is when I became a, um, you know, member of the management team, a, you know, top executive and later to be CEO and all that good stuff. So I dropped poker again. So I'm not the kind of person who can juggle both things. Um, because when I play poker, I, I, I didn't play it for fun. I, I didn't play it for the challenge of it or, the entertainment of it. Um, I found the game to be extremely difficult, similar to golf, but instead of golf, you know, I chose a mind game like poker. Um, and so I had to either do it deeply or not at all. So I have that type of personality. So I, I dropped it, um, which takes us to the third decade when I finally decided that I had put in enough into tech and into my, you know, conventional career. And um, my kid was also getting older. And so I retired. Um, you know, some people would say early 50s is old. Uh, uh, but I, I think most would agree early 50s is rather young for retirement. And so I retired from working for companies or, you know, starting companies or things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still work, you know, um, it, it may not seem like it cause I'm so, yeah, I know what you're about to say, but, um, uh, we can get into that too, but, um, yeah, yeah I, I still work. It's just that work today, uh, comes at me from past colleagues and people who have worked with me or former bosses or, you know, investors. And so I don't pursue or seek out work. It's just, they come to me and pull me into something and I can't say no, then, you know, I get into it for three, six months at a time. But other than that, outside of, you know, family and friends, um, I have a lot of free time. And so, um, I started to play, uh, the third and final kind of stage of my poker life was in, uh, it's been a few years since I actually played, but uh, I put in a lot of uh, hours playing No Limit in a dedicated, dedicated 
manner for the first time several uh, years ago. I can't say how long I played, maybe another two and a half, three years, maybe. Um, and that segues us into kind of how you met me online, right? Which is yeah. I created this pseudonymous or anonymous handle to just read and see stuff going on in the poker world because um, um, at the time I had been working with clients and people and I just wanted to keep the two lives separate. Um, it's just cleaner and easier that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so I created this handle and at first I went on Twitter and I was just reading stuff. I was watching uh, Live at the Bike was really the only uh, stream that was going on daily. So I'd be watching those things because I played a lot of uh, hours with uh, many of the people who play on streams. Um, so they may not know me, but I know them. <laughs> um, so it was interesting to see kind of their views and their opinions about um, issues related to poker, poker businesses, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so I've said a mouthful there. So um, did you want to ask me any follow-up questions? or? Sure. Well, at one point, so you created the, the Twitter handle to follow poker. And then at some point you started uh, tweeting and you started uh, sharing thoughts about poker and business and sometimes the convergence of the two. And um, that's how, you know, I eventually happened upon your account. And you, um, I mean, it's it's really tough to build a following. It's even tougher to build a following on an anonymous account. Um, but you had been, I mean, by the, by the time I saw I mean, I don't remember exactly when I saw a tweet from you. It might have been one that mentioned me or run it once. Um, but by that time, it was obvious to see that you you, you tweeted so much and so much valuable information. Um, it, it was clear that despite, you know, not knowing who you were, um, that you knew what you were talking about. Um, and so that's how I, I found you. And a lot of other poker players have found you. Yeah. What has been your... What was your motivation to to begin sharing thoughts and ideas like that and, and you know pretty valuable thoughts and ideas? Yeah, so um the answer is gonna be um less sexy or exciting than <laughs> than you know than people would like. Um so I started to follow uh poker Twitter mm -hmm. and eventually got bored. Um the same things were being talked about and the same points were being made on both sides of the, of the table. And besides, um, pertinent things, um, that I was interested in, uh, people were just kind of using Twitter to argue, fight, laugh, mm -hmm. um, just, you know, the normal social stuff. And so I found myself, um, bored and then an unexpected thing happened. So I opened my Twitter account, April of 2019, and in May 2019, um, Daniel Negreanu and I got into a, a fight. Mm -hmm. um, and I was frustrated because, he, you know, obviously he has half a million followers and a portion of that following um, are, you know, zealots and they just get mad at anything um, negative about Daniel. And so they started to kind of come after me and I got frustrated because I'm 
typically a long-form thinker and writer. And so um, the word limitations really got on my nerves. And so I wrote a big essay. And the essay took off. Um, it really took off. I mean, I think the first week, um, the number of opens and views were over 20,000. And at the time, I think I had like 20 followers or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so within a span of, uh, within three months, um, I had reached a point where I even from 15, 20 followers, um, I got up to 2,300 followers, 2,000 300 or so followers uh, from, you know, 15. Um, and this alarmed me. And so I started to dig into the followers and I, I didn't like what I saw. So. Um, How do you mean? Yeah. So, well, how do I explain this? Um, so, yeah. I didn't mean for, um, I think, I think some, so I think, I don't know this for a fact, but just, just in looking through their, their Twitter activities, um, the conclusion I drew was that, you know, there were some kind of bigoted people and some misogynist and sort of incel like accounts that were following me. And, and so I had to and abusive people and mean people. And so I had to really ref reflect and say, what, what caused this, right? Mm -hmm. Is it simply that they thought the reasoning and logic in my essay kind of, right, made them a fan and want to see my future writings? Um, and so I reflected deeply. And the conclusion I drew was that I think I attracted angry people okay. who wanted to lash out. So over the course of the next few months, I changed all that. The first thing I did was I blocked over time, of course, but um, largely during that initial 2019 period, I blocked over 1,200 accounts. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I whittled down um, 2,300 to about 1,300, 1,200, thereabouts, and they're still there. So you can go to my initial um, handle personal handle which is uh, Rachel Lee's uh, 69 um, and they're still there and so I made a greater leap uh, uh, you know trim the trim the uh, forest a little bit more a year later uh, when I decided on what I wanted to do and that was um, to talk about what I knew and share as much as I can. So increase the volume of, of writing and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so sure enough, it works. So a lot of people unfollowed, uh, new people followed, and old-time readers, um, you know, ramped up in terms of their engagement and contributing to threads and, and such. And so I sort of got what I wanted, but I got what I wanted by actually cutting people and doing uh, my best to actually limit the number of followers, if that makes any uh, sense. It does. This is interesting. I mean, this is not the direction we were going to go, but I'm just curious. The uh, yeah. So if you're, I guess, I guess I'm curious what your goal, overall goal is. I know it started kind of, it was happenstance, but if your goal is that you have thoughts that you think, you know, 
can help people and, and get the word out, then, you know, having more followers, uh, even if they're followers, you don't agree with their, their personal ethics can actually propel you towards that goal. And a lot of people, I mean, I've actually never heard of anybody calling their list of followers because, uh, I mean, if obviously if that you have a follower who's, who's responding with, with hateful, uh, tweets and things like that, um, or you see elsewhere that they're just a despicable person that, and you want to, you know, block them individually. Sure. But I've, n I've never heard of anybody you know, so diligently going through their list of followers and and making sure that they're not speaking to a lot of these people that they don't agree with. So, yeah. So I guess what was, why is it that you don't want them to be able to see what you're saying and and that it, that you didn't deem it kind of worth it to to grow the following as a whole? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, and I think, uh, my past, uh, informs kind of my behavior and the, mm -hmm. the, the way I approach things. So I come from not just tech, but I come from B2B, um, infrastructure tech mm -hmm. and in B2B infrastructure tech, there's a sequence that occurs with demand generation and revenue creation. That's quite different than consumer tech or, you know, non-tech businesses. And so I view things in terms of um, a different type of funnel, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. So the consumer funnel is based on volume and conversion. Yeah. And B2B infrastructure tech or deep tech is not necessarily based on volume and conversion rates. It's based on account value and, you know, renewals and repeat purchases. And so the amount of time I would need to spend with a volume uh, following mm -hmm. um, detracts and takes away from the time and energy I can spend on the truly um, important people, customers, if you will. Right. And by that, you mean responding to their responses and, and engaging them. Right. Yeah. And this, this um, even the act of making the distinction between who is worth it and not expends a lot of energy, yeah. right? And yeah. so my um, what people don't see with my Twitter activities and account is that that is really for me a salesperson, right? Who's not really selling. Mm -hmm. um, they're not saying, hey, um, if you like what you see, go to my newsletter and pay me. Or if you like what you see, um, pay me to consult you. Um, you know, I'm not really offering a um, call to action. Mm -hmm. um, what it's saying is, in B2B, we always like to say, um, don't just don't just go to 200 prospects and see who wants or needs you, right? Mm -hmm. We say you have to actually be more precise and click down several layers to understand their equipment environment, their organizational structure, their purchasing cycle, their seasonality, their um, uh, tech refresh um, timeline. There's so much you have to learn before you even send someone on a cold sales call. And so um, that's what my Twitter effectively does, which is, um, you know, you, you send out a lot of tweets People pick up on it. Most people pass 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 you by, mm -hmm. and those who pick up on it are now looking for 
um, better ways, deeper ways to engage with you. And so uh, about a year and a half ago, that's why I created the Substack newsletter. And um, at the time, I, I didn't have a lot of work engagements, and so I had a lot of free time to write. So I toned down or I lowered the volume of tweets and I increased the volume of long-form essays. And believe it or not, that's where I see the positive signals, the concrete signals, which is over the last, uh, I'd say, a, a, yeah, roughly a year and a half, a lot of people have emailed me, um, uh, maybe 80% poker players, 20% non-poker players. A lot of people have emailed me asking me for help. Yeah. And I haven't taken a penny. Um, I, I did charge for a paid subscription uh, in the beginning um, just to kind of play around with it um, to see the conversion rates and kind of see the metrics and learn more about how this works. But um, I haven't taken a penny for giving advice. Um, I've spent a, you know, a lot of hours helping people with uh, you know, their resumes, how they should position themselves. Um, to give you an example, most recently, and he follows me, but doesn't um, uh, want people to know. But there's a professional poker player who played poker full time for several years. I think he's a you know winning player, but you know we never talked about that. Uh, he uh, supported himself uh, for many years. Um, he actually decided to he he I don't know if he was a dropout or he never went to school, but anyways, um, he went back to school, Harvard of all things. And he got a computer science degree, mm. undergrad degree, and he wanted to um, go after a either a, a low-level or mid-level role in data sciences, uh, in blockchain technologies at a at a uh, Fang uh, company, at a large company, tech company. And so he, um, you know, he he ran into a, a lot of mental challenges because I think he was anticipating a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. assuming a lot of things like what the roadblocks and hurdles uh, would be. And so when he, he started reading my stuff, I think he, he, he felt that he had a unique insight or a keyhole into how an executive hiring manager thinks about things. Mm -hmm. And so it really uh, relieved him. And so he was able to open up to me uh, even while not knowing who I was. And so he sent me his resume and a body of work, so papers he had written, research he had done into uh, Web3, into blockchain, um, into crypto, um, as an engineer, as a developer. And so I was able to work with him and package it so that it's um, not only can get beyond the gatekeepers at this large company, but, you know, he would have the upper hand. You know, here's how you turn a perceived weakness or a you know um or a risk right um and turn it into a strength and so he ended it by saying that um you know it's been extremely helpful and he was so thankful um and now you know we just uh wait if, uh, wait some time and kind of follow up and you know i'll follow up and see how he does at some point or he'll reach out to me but um, this is just one of, you know, several examples where it gave me the kind of light bulb to say that, hey, you know what, um, I'm not wasting my time. Um, this is worth it. 
Um, and for people who don't know, um, w one of the reasons why I tweet a lot is because I, um, partly because I'm lazy. And so um, I tweet about stuff that is instantly retrievable. So that's why you see me talking a lot about my experience, um, I think, which has the dual F effect of kind of building trust and credibility over the long term. But um, I tweet about stuff that I've lived through and things that are just instantly um, recogni you know, recognizable. So like I don't, um, other than a few dozen times over 15,000 tweets where I actually researched or read up on things such as um, statistics to do with the poker industry. Sure. Um, you know, I'm literally just sitting on my couch or, you know, in my backyard with my smartphone, just tapping things out. I, I don't draft. I don't think about things. I just, <laughs> I just send stuff out. Um, well, it's very impressive. I know, I know that <laughs> like it, for me to, cause I, you know, I occasionally tweet uh, some long threads. Um, I've read almost all of them, by the way. Thank you. So. When I do, it takes me a very long time. <laughs> it takes me, it takes me hours. Uh, cause I am, I'm not researching, but I'm just drafting, editing. Uh, I think I'm, I'm just a slow writer. It seems like you, you can't be a slow writer given the, the, just volume of, of content that, that you put out. Yeah. Also, I think your risk reward profile uh, looks a little bit different as a um, known name yeah. as a real name. Right. Yeah. Um, so I would be aghast. I, I would be shocked if like a CEO that I knew, you know, in real life or in, you know, mm -hmm. uh, were to kind of, do what I do. Uh, there are some out there. I mean, we call it the fuck you money, right? Mm -hmm. There are some people who actually believe in the fuck you money. Um, yeah. And, you know, Shamath, for example, is, is a guy that a lot of poker players know yeah. who, you know, treats kind of external engagements and, you know, speaking engagements in that manner. 99% um, of the people that I know who are as successful or more successful than Shamath uh, don't do that, even with the fuck you money, because uh, we're big believers that the fuck you money is a mirage, right? Because once you get the fuck you money, you don't want to say fuck you, you want to say thank you. And so um, people are very um, deliberate in how they speak. They're very cautious and, you know, uh, careful in how they um, speak publicly. And so I think... Um, that reflects in your speed of writing content versus mine. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not that I don't care. It's that the damage to me, the harm to me is minimal. Yeah. The damage to you reputationally is high. And so yeah. I think the prudent thing to do is to be careful. And um, that that's the, that's a side benefit of being uh, a pseudonym, but also, as you pointed out earlier, it's also a, a, a hindrance or um, um, a hassle because um, ultimately business relationships are built on trust and knowing one another. And there's such a severe limitation to being able to build a trust-based relationship, a business relationship even with someone, um, you know, who is um, invisible. Um, and so... 
but I've been surprised that people are um, very much open to sharing. Um, people are a lot smarter than, uh, you know, um, people may believe, right? And, and what I mean by that is um, people, for the most part, are very selective when it comes to who is legitimate mm -hmm. um, versus who is not, who is um, self, you know, driving self-interest versus who is not or not as much. Um, they're very good at parsing those things. It's sort of like this automatic phenomenon. Um, and so if you're consistent and I think you're authentic and you don't try to manipulate and be contrived, um, they won't notice it at first. And certainly a lot of people, you know, have accused me of, um, well, I, uh, a bunch of things. I mean, I've gotten everything from death threats, um, you know, shut up or I'll find out who you are, dox you and kill you to, um, you know, get a life. Um, you're a loser. No one cares what you think. No one cares what you share. So, you know, delete your account, I, you know, so in the short term, you're going to, you're going to re receive a lot of that, but over the long run, a fraction of my followers at least have, I think found out that my intent is good yeah. um, and my motivations are genuine. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it was clear to me, I think. Not everyone's <laughs> like you, Phil. <laughs> That's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. All right. So uh, before, before getting into some other topics, uh, I'm going to have, I have to ask a question. So why Rachel Lee's and, uh, and why do you <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, stupidity, right, is the short answer. Um, I basically, like many people, I have a lot of accounts. And mm -hmm. so I couldn't find something. And so I said, hey, um, you know, I'm going to pick a name that is the exact opposite of who I am. So I'm, I'm male, so I'll pick a female name. Um, Rachel was an um, old girlfriend's name. Mm -hmm. So I pick Rachel. Lee's um, sounded Brit, uh, Brit, and so I'm American, and so you know I figured, okay, that's going to be um, a curveball. Um, Sixty nine is I I have trouble um, remembering um, the accounts I create, and having been in the security infrastructure industry for so long, along with other stuff, um, I'm very par paranoid when it comes to writing things down yeah. anywhere digitally or physically. And so I need to memorize these things. And so 69 is the birth year of uh, a sibling. And so um, I, I just put no thought into it beyond that. <laughs> and it led to a lot of problems in it. <laughs> yeah, specifically because it was female? Uh, that's a big one, yeah. yeah. That's a big one. I, I got a lot of, uh, you know, quote-unquote, internet bros, um, kind of uh, doing a lot of weird things. You know, weird things as in, uh, to give you an example, uh, baiting me through DMs. Because earlier, uh, the early period, I used to follow people, mm -hmm. like almost everyone. Um, and then, you know, when you follow people, they can just, um, you know, solicit you through DM. And so I'd get these um, 
it's really awful what some people do. I mean, I you know, Twitter can really get you depressed about um, yeah. mankind or humankind. And so they would bait me, you know, act interested. Hey, you know, I really love what you, you know, said about this. I couldn't agree more. Can you give me more details about it? And then it would end with like a nude picture or something, right? Oh, or yeah. like, you know, go go suck this and, you know, choke and die. Or yeah, I mean, just awful stuff. And uh, a lot of them are, you know, just nameless, faceless people. But you, you'd be shocked at how many of the people that are out there kind of uh, virtue signaling and kind of the known poker players who have done that. So I blocked a lot of them and people get surprised all the time. Why did you block this person? That person's great. I've been a friend of theirs for, you know, a decade or I, you know, they're, they, they, you know, they give to charity and they're this wonderful person. Oh yeah. Let me show you what your wonder per, wonderful uh, person has done. You know what I mean? So yeah. there, there's a lot of that going on, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a big one. The 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 gender certainly caused a lot of problems. Um, I'm also a, uh, a politics wise. I, I don't really tweet about politics mm -hmm. a lot. Maybe five percent of the time, yeah. if that. Um, but I'm a what what people call an Eisenhower Republican, and so. Um, you know, as I aged, uh, I became more socially liberal and, uh, I mean, e economically liberal and socially conservative. And so a lot of people early on mistook that for libertarian or conservative. And so um, when I tweeted stuff, even when I disagreed with what I retweeted, um, you know, it would attract like, you know, Trump supporters or diehard, you know, fringe uh, conservatives or wackos and you know, so, so it, you know, it creates a lot of that because that's a lot of the, the reasoning behind why a lot of, um, dummy accounts or, um, nefarious bot accounts are named, um, kind of under a woman's name, right? Yeah. Um, they want to, um, they want to manipulate and, uh, part of that, uh, formula is to, you know, uh, make it appear as though, women are saying, you know, pro, pro male and anti female things and things like that. So, um, so yeah, it was a mistake. I wish I could change it, but it's too late now. And so I've sort of doubled down and called it Rachel Lee's things and transferred over to my newsletter handle, which is the current one that you're looking at, which is Rachel Lee's things was something um, that I created as a secondary account just to post links to my long form articles, but now I use it exclusively and never log into my other one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. So let's get into, uh, some of the things you wanted to talk about. So, um, uh, I almost not sure where we start. Um, <laughs> thinking for, uh, do you have an idea of, of where you'd like to start just kind of with like an overall summary of, of, of what you'd like to talk about, or do you think, I mean, I guess actually the first thing we could speak about is, you know, kind of your motivations, um, generally and your motivations for coming on to talk. Um, yeah. do you want to start with, uh, discussing some of those? Sure. So, um, I think I'd like to begin by being, um, clear that, you know, I really, uh, care about three things when it comes to poker. And, um, one is, um, to, better educate young people 
who don't know any better that, you know, there is an alternative way that you can incorporate poker into your life without bearing so much risk um, onto yourself. And so a lot of my writing um, is driven by that motivation to tell people, for example, when I say, um, you know, everything you've heard is sort of the opposite of how things are. So for example, you know, taking on risk when you have little to lose, um, that's a fallacy or that's a, that's a myth, right? Um, I'm a big believer that, um, you, you do have a lot to risk because of the, um, uh, function or the, um, effects of time on a life and a career. Um, I also believe that little to lose has nothing to do with really money, but it has to do with, um, um, equity, right. As poker players understand all too well, which is, um, you know, when you're young is when you need to build, right. The foundation, then a bedrock. And then that gives you the optionality to pursue other things. Should you choose? Um, a lot of those choices are taken away if you do things in the, in the wrong sequence. And so all I'm doing is not giving people a prescriptive kind of answer um, or telling them this is what you need to do. I'm just saying that um, you need to understand those other choices. And um, I came to this realization when I played actually um, a lot of uh, limit poker at Bellagio and in LA card rooms where I would sit next to um, young poker pro in their early to mid twenties. And, um, a lot of the games, you know, would be shorthanded or kind of slow. And so they'd start talking to me. I think they're trying to profile me. Um, you know, is this guy a whale or not? What, what have you? And so we get into a long lengthy conversation and it dawned on me that, um, wow, they, they really have things backwards and, um, they're really misinformed. I wonder why that is. And, you know, a lot of that happens because they're um, getting a one-dimensional input, right, from other people just like them who reinforce um, what they're feeling, right, which is, um, you know, this is going to be great. I need to do this. I have nothing to lose and so on and so forth. So um, to summarize, the, the first kind of motivation I had was really like, you know, there are people who, who are just like the young me. Um, in my early 20s. Um, but since I already traveled down that path, right, maybe not the same path as, you know, Phil Galfond or some other uh, successful person, but, you know, a different path. And so I can share a lot of what I learned, um, both as a former poker player, full-time poker player, um, as well as a, you know, uh, as well as a tech executive who has, um, kind of tapped out and reached the peak and, you know, retired early. So that's one. Um, two is, I think I will always be a player um, in some capacity and a fan. Mm -hmm. I, I love poker. And so um, I wouldn't spend all this time um, just out of the goodness of my heart if I didn't love poker. So I certainly love poker. But so much of it is just going downhill. So much of it is wrong. So much of it is bad. And so um, I take an interest in the industry from a, from a business standpoint because I understand the 
business better than the player, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a consumer um, tech person would probably understand the user and player um, um, a lot more um, in terms of persona and behaviors and triggers. I understand the operator side or the business side uh, outside of poker, more broadly speaking. And so I, I take an interest in that. And I think a lot of the cures have to involve, but also kind of centrally start there with the operators. And so uh, when I write about uh, businesses, um, yes, a lot of it is uh, critical and um, uh, sharp elbowed, mm-hmm. but uh, underneath the surface, I, I do really uh, fundamentally believe that a lot is wrong with poker and has been for many decades, maybe half a century. Uh, but a lot of that has been changing. And I want to gradually, from this point forward, uh, show them that progress is being made. Progress is uh, slow, but it is being made. Um, and anyone who has done this for 20, 30 years has um, you know, had a foot in uh, the poker industry. Um, I think we'll nod in it in agreement that progress has been made. It's just been damn slow. Um, so that's the second thing. Um, and then the third thing is, uh, the third thing is sort of, I guess, um, less interesting, but, um, you know, if you look at the, the, the poker, typical poker player, um, they're, they're doing so much more today. You know, and so we get into the whole um, overlap, right? The skills you learn in uh, poker, the skills that you acquire elsewhere. Um, you know, those things do need to, uh, like a system, feed on each other, right? If um, if you spend time kind of just talking about it or hypothetically or theoretically thinking about it, but you don't actually act and apply it, um, you don't really um, reap any uh, gains from it. And so I think um, you'll see a lot of tweets from me about, um, you know, seeing someone doing something phenomenal or fantastic in poker or a poker business or a poker role or job. And that really can be portable. You really can, um, you know, make a lot of money in a larger high growth industry, um, which is also funny enough, one of the uh, insights or or kind of knowledge that I bring from um, tech in Silicon Valley is um, outside of some brilliant engineers and technical people that can truly invent the future, there's a lot of mediocrity and average people, they just, you know, they just work hard. And sometimes I see people in poker or through poker and, you know, um, for lack of a better way to describe this, I just go like, what a, uh, and I'm sorry if I offend any of your listeners, but I just think what a waste. Sure. What? Yeah. What a waste. I mean, if uh, I had this fella as my uh, marketing head or sales head or, partnership head or you know graphic designer or whatever right or uh, i had them as a colleague and a close peer we could have done amazing things you know so there's so, such great talent and intelligent people and good people in poker that i i do think sometimes like what a waste and the answer for a lot of them isn't to switch careers uh, for a lot of them it's too late 
uh, for that. There's mm -hmm. too much uh, equity built in to their life that they can't really afford to throw that away. And so fortunately, I think the workplace um, landscape and the expectations of businesses have shifted again, uh, progressed little by little to the point where um, you can really have dual careers, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't the case when I started out. Um, you know, when you said um, self-employed, um, you're really talking about freelancers that would get um, morsels, the, you know, crumbs of a budget from a company. Um, outsourced, low-level, task-based, unimportant work. That's what freelancers ate off of. But today you can do entire, right, strategic and important things for people because it's sort of a new uh, blueprint or model for how uh, high-growth, uh, fast-paced startups are being uh, designed from the ground up. And so um, I think there's a, a great opportunity for people to be able to juggle both poker and uh, traditional work. Really? It's interesting. I mean, I yeah. know I've kind of tried to do that, <laughs> but it's hard. Um, it's it's interesting that you. So the if I can just interject, if I can just interrupt to to yeah. give my color on that. Um, so you've taken a big bite. I, I think um, that's the difference between you and maybe you know a thousand other people. Um, I think what you've done is um, uncommon, which is. Um, and I'll stroke your ego a little bit, but um, so in tech, in my career, if you're the top 15%, 20%, you're going to own two and a half homes. You're going to have three cars. You're going to have, um, you know, two kids in uh, college, uh, well paid for. You'll take two vacations a year and you're going to be very wealthy, yeah. um, relatively speaking. Um, you don't have to do that much. In poker, um, through attrition and... Uh, survival and you know just through the randomness of uh competition right through mul multiple people to multiple people hand-to-hand -hand combat um the only people who really succeed in a big way are is a really tiny number yeah it's not like tech or traditional careers it's like one percent two percent and in, in addition they have to protect and guard themselves throughout that entire journey. You can't just be the biggest winner. You also have to have the most stable life. You have to have the most stable mental um, state. You, you have to have the right friends and surroundings, um, influences. You have to do so much more after you become successful. And so what people typically do, the top 1% in any profession, is they want nothing to do with what they, they, they were involved with, right? So the most successful people are not the ones that are teaching people or writing books. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're exhausted. They just, they say, good riddance guy. I'm, you know, that's great. Like I, you know, I don't want to regret my life, so I'm going to do some other stuff. And so they sort of disappear. And that's what happened with my bosses. I have numerous bosses that are, that have made billions of dollars, uh, multiple IPOs. Um, they, they want nothing to do with tech. They want nothing to do with careers, whatever. Um, I'm not like them. I'm a, I'm a slightly above average person that um, is trying to help, you know, others. Um, so with you, uh, what, what was interesting with you is um, you took that and then you kind of took a big bite. Um, 
you may argue and you may be right, but I think you actually took a bigger bite in terms of like bigger, bolder ambitions. And so, and then I, I don't think I, I don't know how you were in years past, but I, I think you still play a little bit. So your, um, you know, interest and enthusiasm over playing hasn't really, um, been stamped out. And so, um, it's really hard to be an operator, a leader, a CEO of a big, you know, of a big or small company with great ambitions. The the important thing is isn't size or scale. It's really the ambition, uh, the weight of the ambition. And so, um, the fact that you are doing stuff contrary to how it's always been done uh, was a signal or evidence to me that um, well, this guy um, is doing the BHAG, you know, big, uh, big hairy, audacious uh, goal. He's really trying to. Um, lift the boulder up a a you know monumental hill, and so um, so I think uh, so. I'm I'm just saying I wasn't surprised that you struggled trying to juggle both things because one ball was this you know ten ton um, you know wrecking ball, and the other was a golf ball. Sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, to to your to your earlier point, I do think. You mentioned that, you know, in, in the tech world, there are a lot of um, successful people who are, you know, mediocre and work hard. Um, I think, you know, in poker, especially in this day and age, that doesn't work. Um, and it's more about aptitude. But I think actually it's it's a career where if you have high aptitude and you don't work hard, um, you can do reasonably well. I mean, that was more the case when I started. Um, but actually, that's what I wouldn't say that's what attracted me to it, but I was definitely in my early years uh, relatively lazy. Um, mm. It came easy to me, um, and, and a lot of my peers were the same way. But do, but do you think it came easy to you uh, in spite of you being lazy, or maybe you were more talented or picked up on it quicker than others, and so you were able to afford being lazy? Um, what, what, what is your assessment of that? I think I think it's two things. I think one... Uh, it, it came easier to me than other people. And so I could afford to be lazy, but two, I found it so interesting that I actually, you know, worked harder at poker than I did at anything else. Um, it, it was still less than my peers, uh, in a lot of ways, but because it was so interesting to me, I, I had more motivation to learn, uh, than I did, let's say in, in school. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, what I've experienced with poker is that, um, well, two things. Uh, the the first aspect between non-poker um, jobs uh, and businesses is that um, both both deal with incomplete information. But in business, uh, a lot of businesses, um, there are so many um, other uncontrollable factors, um, including things like you know, does your boss like you, and yeah, you know. Um, you know, things that are qualitative in nature, um, yeah. where the feedback, you know, really comes late. There's a lag. So there's a saying that, like, I think the average tenure of a CXO, especially something like a chief marketing officer in B2B, at least, is about 18 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the reason why is because the feedback lags. There's a latency of the feedback. And so you don't know after you onboard and and kind of check for organ rejection um you also need to kind of see them produce over multiple quarters because of the sales cycle 
for B2B being, you know, six to eight months or more. Um, even SaaS, um, believe it or not, is not not a monthly thing. Mm-hmm. Um, revenue recognition and acquisition-wise, it's a multiple quarter thing. And so um, you don't know if they're doing well or not, you know. Yeah. Um, but you still have to pay them, right, a, um, <laughs> a lot of money. And so you don't know if you're wasting this money and you find out too late. And so um, 18 months, um, I think, is because it's in your second revenue year. And by that time, you have no choice but to fire them. Um, in poker, you know, um, the feedback loop is almost too fast. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's hard for you to know if you should continue pursuing poker, whether you're winning or losing. Um, you just have to keep playing. And so um, that could be very crushing. And um, the reason why I was thinking of this is that. Um, a lot of people say, well, you know, survivorship, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, well, why did you continue playing poker? Well, because you were winning. You were doing good at it. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true because there are people who may do good at it, but their interest wanes. Almost yeah. like it's, if it's too easy, the interest can wane or, you know, uh, decrease as much as when it's too hard. And so I'm not certain about that phenomenon. I think there are people who actually get more interested because it's difficult, you know, and, and vice versa. I think that's, I think I disagree just in that, you know, Mm. if you, it just, just because it kind of can't be too easy. Um, there's no, like unless unless you're in you know a super soft game and it's and it's the only game that you're gonna play, um, you just have so many losing sessions even as a significant favorite that I, I, it just never feels like predictable and easy. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I think I, I'm kind of um, suffering from short-term memory because um, like when I see people like sitting in a mid-stakes game. Mm-hmm. And putting in an enormous amounts of hours to play a few hands in set mine or, you know, just stack someone with the nuts. Um, those people, quote unquote, easily can make 80 to 120K a year. Yeah, that's fair. And Yeah. And, but why don't those people play for 10 years, 15 years? Um, so I, at some, I, yeah. I think the reason those people don't do it is because, if you're somebody who who loves the game and is competitive, you've um, you're not satisfied there. So you 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 don't play that style. You try to max EV and you try to move up in stakes. Um, but if if you're content, just kind of you know uh, taking the box of just playing nitty and playing the hands you're supposed to play, just and you're doing it for the hourly, then you then you get bored. So would you say then that more people? who are mid-stakes grinders or pros get disillusioned by poker than high-stakes players or higher-stakes pros? Because it's a good question. I mean, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, I've seen a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, say, um, is this all there is to it after they, quote-unquote, reach the top, reach the peak? Yeah. Um, I it's as been, measured by stake. Okay. I mean, I think it's a it's going to be correlation rather than causation because I think the factor is their competitive drive and in, in like enjoyment of the game. 
um, enjoyment of, you know, beating people at a game. Mm. And so that, you know, those people with more drive and more interest in the game for the game itself tend to have more success. Um, and they tend to play a style that is not super ABC and, and nitty. And I think those yeah. are people who, who can last longer because they're, they're, they're competitive, like it may, their competitive drive makes it fun and rewarding for them. And then there are people who found, you know, they had a friend making money playing poker who said, Hey, it's easy to just do this. And they, they got into it to, to make money and they've come up with kind of a simple system that allows them to make money and, or w whether it's strategy or they've gotten into a great game. Um, and then that, I, I feel like they could burn out more easily because, well, <laughs> burnout's maybe the wrong word. Cause actually the, the former player is, is doing something more stressful and challenging, um, but they could just get bored. Yeah. Why did you ever, um, were you ever a losing player? I, I mean, not at the beginning, every, everyone, you know, reloads online or, you know, buys in and, you know, what, what have you, but I mean like a real long stretch where you lost and you said, you know, what am I doing? I guess not really i mean i've had no not really i mean maybe yeah. very, you know a year I've, I've probably had a year-long downswing but um so so a person like you who has uh um not really uh been punished by the game mm -hmm. um or the profession um i'm sure you've seen kind of you know the dark sides of it yeah. uh, throughout your journey but uh, at what point if any did you decide um, because I, I understand the training thing the, the business the sharing of knowledge um, giving giving back I think that that fills a lot of satisfaction holes mm -hmm. uh, in any any walk of life and profession but what made you one day say this isn't enough um, and and start another business um, the the poker site it's a it's a good question and it wasn't uh it wasn't extremely well thought out. I mean, the, uh, well, first I'll give, I'll give a, a, you know, disclaimer. So that, or not disclaimer, but anyways, you know, you talked about some people who, you know, made it to the top of, of tech and then they want nothing to do with it. Um, you know, I've been successful in poker, but I'm, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been successful to that level, you know, financially where, um, I have more money than I know what to do with. Uh, so there was always an element of, you know, like I, I was trying to start businesses that I thought were plus EV and could add to, uh, my income and net worth. And that was still part of the motivation, um, even in training, which is it, it, like, I love teaching. Um, but it was still the, a big part of the motivation is I think, I think we can make a, a better training site and I think we could do well. And that's, that's a big part of it. So with the poker site specifically, it was around the time that that uh, PokerStars, uh, after selling to Amaya, was making some changes that actually made me fear for the future of online poker. Um, specifically, um, you know, slashing rewards, but then also increase. There, there was a rise in game types that were super low edge. Um, so obviously, spin and goes have been wildly successful um, all around, but they also, they, they came out with a format called beat the clock, which they no longer run, but it was just like a, I don't know, a 10 minute tournament where you then cashed out your chips. It was basically like a lot of things that were high rake and low edge and yeah. I was becoming popular. And I was worried that as, you know, they were essentially a monopoly at that point, 
Um, I, I was worried that that's where the industry was heading, uh, where poker would become like a poker themed casino where there are no winners uh, at all. And so yeah. that worried me as a player. Uh, and then we had been successful with run at once training and obviously it's a, it's a different business and, um, kind of unrelated skill sets, but that combined with, you know, what gave me at least enough confidence to be like, you know what, maybe, maybe we could, maybe we could succeed in this area and, and try this and build something that would help preserve online poker in, in the way that I, that I knew it and loved it. Uh, so that was the motivation, I guess, in, in, in short. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I, I, I think what I, I'm hearing from you is what I heard from a lot of other um, startup founders, which is, um, you know, they initially thought of it as an investment of time and money, but eventually um, it, it became more um, personal, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that's what led them to kind of, you know, quit high paying jobs or um, stop what they were doing and um, just put all in, so to speak, um, yeah. into changing kind of what they thought needed change, you know, and so that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you think that, um, you know, going uh, back some years to online poker, uh, online uh, poker, mm -hmm. um, you think that, and and I don't I don't really want to talk about um, unless you do. I don't want to talk about like you know what caused the poker boom and all that. I, I think um, in general business cycles have boom cycles and bust cycles, um, and you know that's how things just generally work with the economy and with businesses. But um, so I don't want to get into the causes of the boom, but. Um, do you think the functional role that online poker served in the past, was it a gateway drug or was it a lead gen? So meaning a lead gen would be, did online poker pull in or bring in people who otherwise may ha have not played poker? So did it create net new customers, first time customers? Or um, did online poker take an existing group of people who play poker or were gamblers and would most likely play poker and did they give them marijuana to the um you know um meth or cocaine that would be live poker or something like that what, what was it a gateway drug or lead gen i guess i feel like it was both you know um people who I mean, for, for so many people, so many of my peers and myself, um, you know, I, I was interested in gambling. I played poker a little bit with friends. Um, I watched it on TV. Uh, but, I mean, I wasn't going to go to, like, travel to casinos to play. Like, I don't know. It was, it was in the convenience of my dorm room. Uh, I was able to just play. And so I think it was, yeah, for a lot of people that would have played if they had a poker room, you know, next door, uh, it became mm -hmm. a poker room next door. Uh, and then for people who already did play, it was, it was also a more convenient way to play, uh, and, and put in more hands and, you know, generate more revenue, uh, from those players. I don't know. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Because I, I think it's uh, fundamental to, um, 
to any discussions over, you know, how do we grow poker or how will poker grow or decline is you really need to, it does online, you know, because the elephant in the room, obviously that um, we haven't talked about yet is, uh, you know, all, all of the rampant cheating and uh, all of that online. Yeah. And um, the, I think people sort of jump to conclusions there in terms of like, you know, how damaging it is but a step a small step before that would be does it even matter and does it even matter kind of gets us to that question that you addressed now which is is it a lead gen or is it a gateway because you know a gateway just right is is has different output different um ends right it means um, stickiness, it means uh, lifetime of playing, loyalty, steady, reliable revenue streams. Um, it's very optimized for um, kind of um, cash cow, uh, big markets, um, incumbent legacy type of organizations or operators, yeah. um, right? Because you're monetizing them after you kind of, you know, give them the easy uh, marijuana, right? Um, you, you don't want to kill them. You want to uh, move them to the, the cocaine. And, and apologies if any of the listeners are um, um, suffering from drugs or know of people suffering drugs. Um, I, I just couldn't find a better an analogous situation. Um, yeah. And if you treat it as a you know demand gen, that's a whole nother story, right? That's basically you're saying that growth with uh, brick and mortar and growth with um, live casinos and card rooms um, is is not going to be enough. Is not going to be adequate. Yeah. And so you you basically you basically um, need more more people. And so um, you really do need to use online as a demand gen. And then the key question then is like, uh, and this is this whole Sheldon Adelston um, and Indian tribe thing, right? Which is um, where are the synergies? Uh, because they viewed zero sum, you know, online is taking away business from live. Right. Uh, we need to shut them out. And they didn't even stop there. It wasn't just a matter of a, live casino versus online casino it had to do with other forms of gambling so they were their lobbyists were not just knee deep with you know poker um, or blackjack but also with you know sports uh, betting you know racetracks lotteries all sort all forms of gambling and so um so i just uh, thought about this because uh, all the rage right now uh is about um cheating and you know what's cheating, what's not cheating, which is more harmful, which is not, you know, which is less harmful, which will, which will risk the growth of poker in the future or not, you know, just a lot of that stuff. And I, I think, uh, I think we need to pause and ask ourselves, does it matter? Um, I'm inclined to say yes, obviously, because I, I, I tend to view, um, online poker as a lead gen mm. even if there are people like you who would never play live or intend to play live you just like the convenience and easy access of 
playing uh, in your pajamas and you know working with a screen. So uh, a portion of um, new players will never um, play live and and enlarge in the you know global pot. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, a lot of people. Uh, I don't feel they're doing the same thing. I, f I feel that um, a lot of them, and we can get into problem gambling and stuff, but they're sort of uh, in, you know, just telling you what you already know, but they're doing the opposite of what you attempted with your site, which is, uh, and I, I've written even this morning about it and other days, but um, they're really um, um, turning people, they're holding people hostage is kind of the way I'd put it. They're, um, you know, they're creating games to make people addicted. They're mm -hmm. making it difficult for people to make responsible decisions. Um, and so what I tweeted today, and uh, tell me if you agree with this, is um, because it's not immediately intuitive, mm -hmm. but um, the best thing that can happen for online poker or any form of poker is for a lot of people to be break even. Yeah. Yeah. The max break even and and there are multiple ways that you can reach that end state. Um, you can do it through trickery, you can do it through um incentivizing more deposits with bonuses, you can do it through um a lot of the tried and true ways, which I don't always agree are the right ways. Um, but you can also do it with um kind of some of the stuff that you have tried and others um, have attempted, which unfortunately in the short run it isn't as effective because the user base is, you know, conditioned and primed already to right. expect to be mistreated. So it, I used to read some uh, two plus two threads where people are criticizing sites like run it up, uh, run it once. Um, and saying that, well, you haven't done this and everybody expects this. Well, everybody is a, you know, is um, held hostage to, and, and they're cocaine addicts, right? So they, yeah, they, they want things that, you know, the dealer, the provider has always given you. And so if you suddenly go from that to eating something that's pure, it's not going to taste good. Yeah. So you have to you have to eat what is healthy for you for a long time for you to now be readjusted to the the normal way, you know normal thing the healthy thing the less dangerous thing you know and so um, but I'm but a pea in a large ocean and so um, I wish that more influencers and more people with platforms would talk about this stuff. Um, it's not as exciting. It's almost academic and kind of, you know, classroom-like. Um, but, and people prefer, you know, emotionally charged, you know, things, right? Like, Bryn Kenny is a cheater ghosting, you know. He's a cheater. We should ban him, you know. Let's get a blacklist. Who's going to be on this council? And I'm just sitting there shaking my head going, wow. You know, a lot of these people are the same people who claim, you know, claim that there's no progress being made to improve poker, to improve the, the industry. And they don't even know that they're the cause. They're central to the reason why there's inertia, why nothing's changed. Um, and so I think if you were to pull your um, training site 
mm-hmm. customers. I guess they're different because they're they're uh, a lot more advanced and experienced. But I wonder what would happen if you put up a poll and put up those options, right? Which is um, long term. How does the poker economy and the player pool and ecosystem grow in a healthy, uh, sustainable way? And one of the options is, um, you know, maximize breaking even players and put another one as, you know, introduce more luck in the game. The other one is, um, you know, celebrate or, um, right, um, celebrate the best of the best. Um, and, you know, you put these different options. And I, I guarantee you um, with near certainty that a lot of people think they, they're sort of one and the same, right? Mm. Meaning... Uh, the way you um, create break even, right, is through um, put you know incorporating more luck in the game because this is how people like Daniel Negreanu, who is um, a hev- heavily um, listened to voice, yeah. um, thinks and talks, and I believe, I think he really believes it, and because I don't think he's had fundamental like kind of experience and training with just business fundamentals, right. So like he really thinks like yeah if you if you make it more luck based it's going to grow because you know we're going to get more rec players and rec players have uh, disposable income from outside of the player pool outside of the ecosystem so they bring in new money No it just means you kill people faster you you still are going to you know have the same age old problems that businesses have right? Which is repeat purchases, which is longer hours. Um, You still have the LTV or lifetime value problem. You still have a churn problem. You still have all these other problems. They don't go away. So there are other ways you can um, ensure that people are, you know, more break-even. One of which is probably controversial, but you know, the multi-tabling reduction, I think, is a good move. Yeah. You yeah. agree with that, right? I do. Yeah. And I mean, but it's so, uh, <laughs> I do. It's so hard to do. It's yeah. so hard to do because, first of all, everybody's upset about it. Second of all, if you're not the, I mean, basically, you sacrifice a lot of traffic and liquidity, which liquidity is king, um, yeah. especially if you're, I mean, entering small markets like the U.S. or you're starting a a startup like we did in the rest of the world market, um, you're just, you know, cutting off your legs to, if you, if you don't let people fill up your games by multi-tabling. Um, but I mean, that was, so we, we launched, I think we launched with a four table cap and increased it to a six, um, just because we needed the players. But I, I, um, yeah, I think reducing it even further is probably what's best um, for the game and longevity of the game and the experience of the recreational player, which then leads to, you know, more redeposits. Right. And you did it at a time when, um, the landscape was, um, much lesser affected by bots. Yeah. You know what I mean? And now, so if you look ahead the next five years, 10 years, what, what have you, you, the two will converge to the point where, by allowing uh, many uh, uh, tables, right, to be uh, played at once, mm-hmm. you're taking away 
from the rec player, the the casual player, right? Yeah. Um, your future cream of the crop kind of uh, the gold mine, and you're literal. You're putting arms into the mercenary, the bad guy, who can now. I hate this phrase because it's used by um, uh, nerds online, but you're weaponizing them. You know, you're just saying, okay. Um, because today, you know, people say, you know, where's cheating happening? Um, cheating is happening everywhere. Um, I hate these um, people who argue, uh, and you, 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 you should speak to this since you know 10 times more than us because you operated a site, but they don't just happen at high stakes or low stakes or mid stakes or MTTs or sit and goes or cash games. They happen everywhere. That's how, that's how cheating happens in, you know, businesses too, right? Which is, uh, you know, different, different formats present a different kind of detection and um, punishment profile. So, okay. so like their goal is to be everywhere at once so that they can learn where it works the best, but it doesn't mean they take their hands off of right. Other, other formats or what have you, they're everywhere and they will keep cheating until they're, you know, they're detected. And since the rate of detection um, in security, we used to always say it's like, you know, they're not going to spend money on evasion. They're going to spend, spend money on reach. Mm -hmm. So if you look at kind of the early um, botnet kind of systems that proliferated um, in the early two thousands when, you know, People up until then didn't know anything about botnets. They talked about viruses and, um, you know, localized malware, um, hijackings and stuff like that. But, you know, in the early 2000s was when botnets exploded. They started popping up in bulletin boards and IRCs. They were being sold in underground kind of sites. And that's basically the the lesson I learned through... Um, you know, helping build technologies to fight these guys. Um, and we worked with the CIA and FBI and all that, but uh, government agencies and nation states, but um, they spend all of their time basically with the assumption that they are going to get caught. So this notion that they're like, you know, um, doing things to prevent getting caught and, mm-hmm. That that's sort of faulty. What what they do is um, their economics is based on getting caught. So we need to continue to reach more and more. We need to increase our footprint, not reduce it. So this notion that like botnets are going to isolate themselves into the least detectable kind of areas of the the, the poker environment is sort of um, yeah, it it doesn't kind of ring with me. Um, so. I, I would say to you, um, or ask of you, mm-hmm. um, because I think a, re- a reader, um, Twitter person, um, asked, but, um, where, where are those lines for you in terms of like, you know, what is the cheating method that is absolutely in your mind threatening the future of online poker versus, what are some mid-level kind of cheating schemes that 
we can mitigate or reduce a little bit? And then what are the cheating kind of methods that in your mind, uh, although you don't like it, it's kind of like, huh, you know, there's nothing we can really do about it. Um, yeah. Because for me, ghosting would be in that third category, which is ghosting has always been around since the late 90s, since the first uh, versions, right? Version 0 0.5 of online poker. Um, yeah. So, I so think what would be your one, two, three? I mean, so my sliding scale of what, you know, the, the worst types of cheating are to, to the least bad are, are essentially, it's correlated with um, with edge and like beatability. So, you know, if you're playing against somebody who is RTAing or botting with, you know, an unexploitable uh, optimal strategy, then that's very, that's unbeatable. Um, and actually even worse than that is if you're playing against somebody on an eight handed table who has five of the eight. accounts, that's, that's yeah. less beatable um, and takes more. Because, but they provide liquidity. Well, I mean, I mean, if you're on a single table and eight of the five players are controlled by one person. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Then uh, it, it's sort of like even if they don't try to collude, they're colluding. Sort yeah. of, right? I mean, they're colluding. If they're do, if they're if they have five people on the eight-handed table, they're colluding. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are. Well, I, I I meant you know bots. Like you have a botnet, I have a botnet. Okay. Yeah. And then we um, accidentally end up in the same tables because right, you're playing. 30 tables i'm playing 20 tables and you know they're bots but you and i aren't explicitly colluding i don't even know you yeah 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 then that's but that's, yeah yeah that's just the same as that's the same as botting to me um but i'm, I'm talking about so like i know that the um some of the the gg bands and people who are uh being talked about there um some was I, I don't know i don't know exactly who was doing what but um i know that there was you know multiple accounts in the same uh like you know 30 player tournament uh, i see and those are the that, that's a way to gain a you know a very big edge uh colluding with yourself essentially um i do i do feel compelled to um maybe you just i feel compelled to pause and talk about um cheating on the whole and mm. <clears throat> i think that the you know cheating of some kind it depends where we where we draw the line but cheating of some kind has been going on for a long time. I, uh, obviously, and it basically has always been happening, uh, to some degree. I don't feel like the, so here's how I feel. I think 10 years ago, there were bots capable of beating, you know, uh, let's call it mid stakes MTTs. Uh, and I don't feel like the, basically as, you're a good person to ask about this, but as technology is progressing, I feel like the bot situation is, if it hasn't already, um, on a trajectory to improve because bots like optimal play um, or winning play by a bot has have been around for a long time. Yet uh, with the progression of technology, detection gets better. Um, and my understanding is, you know, for a site like, I've heard numbers, or actually, PokerStars posted numbers at some point that like 95, 96% of their uh, cheaters caught were caught by them internally, not by suggestions and and tips uh, from the public. So that gives you an idea yeah. of you know the level of scale that they're catching 
internally already. My understanding is that the the you know a, a bot ring of let's call it 30 accounts um, those are are significantly easier to catch than let's say one high stakes player using RTA um, like like world different because the bot ring is going to have accounts playing similar strategies presumably um, they're also going to have some patterns in some way whether it be you know you can look into their digital footprint but uh, and, and like you know obviously they can obfuscate their ip and things like that but but you can find some things to look for um some elements of the programs they run on their computer um and then also you know they have to fund their accounts and they have to cash out so uh find some patterns in in how they're creating identities and and funding accounts and cashing out and and you know the financial and financial institutions they use so my understanding is that while those have always been a threat and they still are absolutely a threat I don't think it's as widespread and and um, kind of relentless as as a listener might uh, feel you implied. Yeah. So um, so for the most part, I, th- I I would agree with a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't know the current state of things. Um, my knowledge of things go back to when I was in the um, industry, the tech industry. And so um, one of the things um, that I was keen on learning more about just because of my personal interest in poker is kind of how it works in the gaming industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I worked with a lot of uh, servers and uh, helped build a lot of the data center, including Google. Um, I, I was one of you know a couple hundred people, obviously. So I have a deep interest in that space. And one of the things we learned was that, um, or I learned, is that... Um, in the beginning, so the way a bot works is, uh, or a botnet in this case, command and control, is it works through obfuscation. So kind of it, um, it's a machine, you know, with a human behind it, mm-hmm. but largely it does its bad deeds by um, fooling people, right? Fooling mm-hmm. businesses up um, and what have you. And we saw this in the financial markets a lot um, a lot um, sooner than something like poker. There, there's just not enough money in poker. So most of the uh, organized crimes and syndicates um, from Eastern Europe using um, Russian former you know, KGB hackers and whatnot, they went after the financial sector. And that's sort of how they operated. So um, they're very rules-based. So similar to a router switch, um, a controller, you put in rules and they can only do the rules. So there's a very, uh, very much of a cap, right? There's a limit to mm-hmm. how much damage they can do because they cap out rather quickly. And so you had to do things in volume, which is why they sold large pre-built botnets of thousands, sometimes ten, tens of thousands. And this is all published, right? This is all available through Google. You can go see um, botnets that were captured. Um, they hijack, you know, tens of thousands of uh, unknowing computers, unknowing devices. And so the bad guy is not enrolling or enlisting uh, innocent people and using their resources to do the bad deed. So there's a cap to that. The second wave of botnet usage and one we've also seen in online poker, I think uh, there's a media site in poker that actually talked about this, is um, they started to do social engineering, so the human element. So they went and 
Um, you can go to, you know, poor countries um, and pay them, you know, 200, 300 bucks to let them uh, lease their identities to you. Yeah. And so through structure of technology and the um, borderless nature of technology deployment, you no longer have to rely on obfuscation, meaning IP masking, um, DNX proxy redirects, um, you know, filtering. Um, you don't have to do this trickery because at the end of a connection, at the endpoint is a real identity, a real person. So it raised the ceiling or the cap a little bit more because that's more, um, what should I say, um, safer for the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Now, the unintended consequence of that is that it made it easier because it wasn't based primarily on technology schemes, uh, techniques, um, but it was kind of a human uh, fraud, human kind of cheating. Uh, it made it easier for sites like PokerStars and others, and I'm sure if you, you talk to their security teams, they would um, tell you, but uh, the way they catch um, most of these people is not necessarily through pattern matching or gotchas. Mm -hmm. Like, um, um, oh, you know, we, we see that this is um, this um, IP is being um, rerouted and going through multiple hops, but it belongs in this regional zone um, of a telco or a GI firewall. And so, yeah, now I nabbed you. It doesn't happen that way. Most of the captures detection and captures occur because of mistakes that the humans make with the human identity. So things like you sign up, uh, a new player sign up, signs up um, using a made up, you know, brand new email. And then now the security team can actually do forensics on the email and go and see if um, there are, um, there's any kind of footprint on the internet in terms of um, this new account. And believe it or not, the alarms go off, the, the positives, right, go up. If that new account, say, Rachel Lee's at um, AOL.com, mm -hmm. suddenly has a lot of activity, right, Yeah. on the internet, yeah. that actually increases the grade. And so then they pry into that, and then they do challenges, right? Handshake challenges, identity challenges, um, AAA challenges. And that's how they kind of find them uh, for the most part. And then there are um, advanced techniques beyond that, which does do kind of um, heuristics and kind of, um, you know, evaluation and analysis of the play, correlate that or tie that back to previous accounts that were banned. And then you can kind of, right? Yeah. Um, cross-pollinate the two uh, databases and say the likelihood of this being a repeat offender is very high. This is a cheater that has been banned before. And so you kind of um, clean clean the, the, the user base that way, the database that way. So I agree with you from the standpoint of, yes, I think um, there is some exaggeration for sure. Mm -hmm. um, because from each generation to generation, you're not like seeing... Um, you know, 10 bot ring, uh, botnet ringleaders increased to now like, you know, five years later, now we see 30, right? Yeah. I, I think the bad guys are relatively static. Um, it's just a matter of kind of how bold they become and how 
widespread their activities become. And so I, I agree with you in the sense that it's a lot more contained than people think. If you mm-hmm. uh, think of things in current and past terms, um, but um, and this is my fault for having a tendency to project out and kind of pontificate on the future possibilities, which is often wrong because you can't really predict behavior, right? But mm-hmm. if I just look at where the technology is going, um, you know, if you look at, um, and by the way, a few years ago, <laughs> just out of, uh, for fun, uh, uh, some friends and I uh, played around with, you know, virtual machines and things like that. There, there were a lot of packages out there for kind of, you know, how, how to build a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, botnet. But um, in the past, you would download something, you would get cobbled together some machines, you would have to resolve the payment system for the cashing out, the identity to register and all that, um, and then let the, the machine run. And the machine, right, is this um, elementary kind of slow crawling thing so then you, you know, make a little chunk of money. Um, as botnets have advanced, now you couple, basically it's a payload, right? A botnet is a payload. It's not an app. People keep talking about it as though it's an app or a tool. No, it's a payload. It carries an app. And that app in the past used to be rudimentary. It used to be, as uh, you called it, um, very elementary. It used to be just, and do this, do that, right? Uh, very rule-based. Um, it's as strong and as deadly as the rule itself. And so the rules, um, much like poker knowledge, has really advanced. The state of art in poker has really accelerated. And so today, when you look at things like um, uh, solvers, um, I don't know uh, much about solvers, but um, they're what I call their processing. So the big difference is, you know, solvers are processors. They generate, they generate answers versus follow directions. Yeah. Right. And so, so these are, um, that's a whole new level of cheating. So that's how I kind of frame things, which is, um, you know, pre-flop charts or other tools. It's not a matter of dynamic or not. People keep saying, you know, dynamic, not dynamic. You know, this is just a chart. This is actually, you know, taking inputs. It's not a matter of dynamic. It is a matter of, is it generating? Is it modifying? Is it self-learning? Gotcha. And so, tech, you know, so technology is at a point where outside of poker, you know, machine learning has been going on for a decade now. And you see it in IoT devices you see it in beacon devices you see it in cars you know it's learning it's so what happens to that learning what happens because the 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 advanced botnets today are not just outputting they're inputting right they're collecting information about everything about a site it's you know users about um, you know patterns and statistics so um, someone at some point uh, can convert that or translate that into the third generation of, of bots. And when it comes to cheating, my, my assumption is that when something can be done, it will be done. Um, and so um, I'm a lot, lot less, uh, I'm, I'm a lot more bearish on, on the future, but on the other hand, how I think that you can overcome that, right? 
that inevitability is by growing poker. So um, the best way to minimize um, the botnets isn't to be perfect or to eliminate 96% of them. It's to make them a smaller percentage of the overall whole. And um, because you need poker to grow massively in order to get the money to reinvest into security to get rid of those things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So that's the formula. Yeah, I agree. Growing. I mean, growing. And, and probably, I agree. Growing is, is, is the. That's the only way. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no. There's not enough capital to go after um, and make a dent in the cheating unless you're able to reinvest, um, you know, income and turn a portion, a big portion of your income into operating expense, right? So OPEX, cash, mm -hmm. you need the cash. Um, and that'll attract um, better white hats. That'll attract better forensic engineering. That'll uh, be able to purchase uh, larger technology uh, farms and um keep that cheating at bay um so one one interesting element and in this kind of segues into i'm curious to talk to you about just poker and business in general um the yeah. the sites so other than poker stars which was you know poker only uh, and actually gg um most mm -hmm. poker platforms um you know, are part of a, belong to a company that has a suite of products, including casino and sports book. Um, and this is the model that as, as poker, uh, becomes legal in more and more States in the U S these casinos and sports books are, are all looking to add poker platforms. Um, and that's, that's how we at run at once are on our way to the U S um, in again, not for poker stars, probably not for GG, but in, in, in all of these cases, poker ends up making up a small fraction of the revenue um, that a company brings in, something like sub 5%, maybe as low as 1% or 2%. And um, the reason it's there uh, for them is is acquisition and retention. Because um, obviously if, you know, if one of your casino players wants to play poker and can't do it on your site, they're going to go somewhere else and probably use their casino uh, just out of simplicity. And so I wonder if, you know, even if poker in the States doesn't grow large enough to, to on its own, you know, generate the revenue that, that helps combat these issues. If the companies on a whole are doing so well and are generating so much revenue that the investment in poker, despite, despite like the fact that you don't necessarily see the return on the poker revenue itself, um, the investment in poker and the investment in, you know, having the poker site that, everybody considers safest or one of the safest and the best experiences becomes worth it because then, you know, they're, they don't make the revenue directly from poker, but from acquisition and retention, um, and, and converting, you know, other sites, sportsbook players to, to, to their own. Yeah. So I, I think that some, I think that will happen. Um, <laughs> I'm just pausing because I'm thinking it through. Um, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. Um, I, I think, um, so the way I am thinking of things is, you know, the, the age old um, cash cow versus star versus unknown versus dying uh, products, which is a typical way that companies tend to um, allocate its resources, money. 
um, an effort. So poker being kind of low on the the priorities list, so it's you know it's not generating. It's very hard for a CEO to take money from the cash cow or star, a growth product, and put it into, you know, the an unknown or dying product. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're shifting resources away and thus stunting the growth. Um, you're sort of harming yourself. Yeah. Now, where I struggle with this and why I pause and, you know, you give me your take, but um, what's interesting about the scenario you described is that, like, ultimately the customer for these four products, right, um, it's the same customer. It's one account. Mm-hmm. So in order to keep that one account and profit from that one account for as long as possible, um, you would need to make the environment safe for that one account. Yeah. And so I think almost not intentionally, but as an outgrowth of your um, greed to make as much money as you can from that one account, you're going to end up with operators, yes, as you said, uh, cleaning things up and actually putting money into fighting the the cheating problem in a small corner of their business. But I don't think it will be deliberate. I don't think a CEO will you know, in a QBR, sit there, look at reams of data and say, you know what, um, it's just good business to kind of, right, put some more money this quarter or this year into this area. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. But if what will, what could happen is if, you know, within that, that, that portfolio of four offerings, poker um, does grow. And if it grows, then then it'll be worth it. So it, it won't be a free rider, right? Right. Uh, issue. It is going to get dedicated funds um, directed at it. Now, um, you know, poker. Like if you look at the classic kind of point product versus solution, multiple p- products um, tied together, kind of with wraps and bow ties, and then you know the natural, you know, uh, ideals, you know, thing being a platform. Um, platform being extensible. Um, if you look at what the, the gaming or gambling sites are doing today, uh, it is in that mid-stage mid, mid of solutions. So this notion of um, uh, cross, cross-traffic and, you know, the, the whole is larger than the sum of its parts mm-hmm. thing. So, you know, this notion that, like, if we uh, attach poker into a sports betting site, the sports gamblers are going to spend money on poker. I don't believe that for a second, um, at least not now. Um, there's, oh, of course, there's some of it, I, but I'm just saying it's not material. It's not meaningful. Yeah, um, what it's worth, I don't think they're thinking that they're going to tack on poker and add add much revenue from poker. And oh, their, I see. Their LTV. I think they're they're thinking that through poker, we retain more players if because so that our, our players don't go elsewhere to a, a competitor that has poker. And also, um, through poker, we can acquire customers uh, for lower cost because uh, easily poker keywords and uh, other 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 ways to. I see. Poker. Yeah. So they're looking at poker not to drive or pull uh, money, but just as a quick and easy turnkey like. Um, acquisition 
basically basically the same reason why company A buys company B to buy its customers, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not because they want to integrate that company B's product into company's A product to charge, you know, two million dollars instead of two hundred thousand dollars. So I, I see what you're saying. Okay, that makes more sense then. Now um um I, I'm a lot clearer in terms of what it is they're up to. Um that would make a lot a lot of sense. Um to be able to um, just in- increase the the user count yeah. uh, overall, because yeah, th- but but there is an opportunity, um, whether from today's vendors or operators or tomorrow's uh, vendors, that the the site can become a platform and be ext- extensible. So um, I don't, you know. Um, by extensible, I mean just like you know, all, all platforms. It will be able to attach or um, uh, tie into other stuff that has nothing to do with gambling. Okay. Yeah. So, so for example, um, gaming right now is treated quite separately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, e-gaming. Um, yeah. And I tweeted about this too, but I, I, I have a funny story where um, I was helping some. Um, Founders um, pitch an idea for, you know, poker. Um, it had to do with like sponsorships and kind of. It was more of an ad company than a poker site, but the model was completely different. And uh, a few VCs, um, top tier VCs in the in the valley, were interested, but they basically said that the that their uh, hands are tied um, because a lot of the sovereign states. And um, outside of pension funds and institutional investors, um, a lot of these large funds, when you get into the half billion to, to larger, you know, have the Saudis or other kind of, you know, nations, mm-hmm. um, sovereign money. And as part of the LP agreement, they can't touch gambling. Yeah. And so they consider e-games as um, play, like even though it involves virtual currency and real money, they consider it non-gambling okay. and then poker, you know, goes into gambling. And so, um, at some point, um, I believe at least the, that, that, that wall will go away. Um, and e- e-gaming and, you know, the gambling that we know today, I think merges and that turns the solution, right. Point product solution platform that turns the solution into a platform. Yeah. And once that turns into a platform, you can only imagine how big this thing gets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets way beyond social kind of stigmas and religious or political or, you know, community-based arguments about whether it's safe or not. Um, It just becomes a part of life. And when it becomes a part of life is actually, I think, the problem gambling and all of that gets better addressed. because at the end of the day, everything comes down to funding. Everything comes down to um, will, you know. Um, and so, oddly enough, uh, that's what was swimming through my head when I was watching, you know, the um, the streamers playing on uh, the poker live stream. Yeah. Hustler, I think. Um, not I think, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I was thinking this is the first kind of, not inning, but the first at bat in the first inning of the game that's to come, which is this convergence of the two worlds. Yeah. 
um, because at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's for the vast majority of the public, it's a form of leisure, it's a form of recreation, it's a form of fun, it's a form of passing the time. Um, and so, um, you know, I think, uh, what's his name? Um, the blue haired guy, uh, Ninja. Ninja, yeah. Yeah, Ninja said in one clip that I saw that um, he played poker before, but lost interest in in it, became a gamer, but now he's finding renewed um, enthusiasm for poker. Yeah. And so he's a lab study for um, a marketer who wants to understand the psychology of e-gaming versus poker, you know, yeah. kind of what what are the similarities, what are the differences, what pushed them in one direction versus not another? Because, um, you know, a lot of people like Ike Haxton, um, you know, who I like a lot too, um, you know, my understanding is they were, you know, Magic the Gathering, you know, um, card players, and then, you know, poker kind of, right, was a natural transition to make because the money was in poker. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think they they, you know, transitioned or moved into poker because they love poker. You know, it's a better game. And, you know, I think they love games, but at some point in their life, they go like, how do I want to spend my doing, you know, my uh, scarcest asset, which is time. Yeah. And they go, well, I'm going to direct it here. Play the game um, where I can make money rather than the game. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's an area that... Um, I find very interesting as a person who, uh, with a lot less, um, you know, background and knowledge is, um, you know, a lot of people like yourself and others who are, who have been in poker a long time, they're more, um, the way they think it's more about behavioral, you know, and kind of psychology. Um, and then kind of the world I came from is more process orientation and frameworks and um, stuff like that kind of. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know where I was uh, going with that. Well, um, I'll, I'll take it somewhere different. So you, you earlier mentioned, you know, we're not going to get into, uh, you didn't want to get into, you know, like how the poker boom started and I don't really either cause I don't know the answer, but, um, the, the kind of poker bust, uh, I think was precipitated by, you know, black Friday, um, and really the money leaving advertising for televised poker we lost a lot of televised poker after black friday at least in the u.s and i think that, that elsewhere as well um but but especially in the u.s um and i i think with with more and more states I, I really do believe more and more states are coming and i think that that a lot of big companies you know not only the poker stars and the ggs but the the big u.s companies um that that are not poker specific now um, we'll, we'll get into poker. I think there's going to be that, that money once again for marketing, uh, advertising on poker streams, on poker, on TV. And, um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, you know, where, where poker entertainment goes, because we're in a different world than we were back on black Friday. You know, there, there streams all the time on YouTube, on Twitch. Uh, that didn't exist in then. Um, now a lot of our poker content uh, that that would have been on TV in the past is on Poker Go, which is, uh, you know, uh, paywalled. Um, not that TV wasn't, but in a different way. I'm mm. I, 
I'm curious. I don't know where poker on TV is going, but I think there's going to be more funding behind it soon. And I'm curious where that takes us and, and where that, well, where it does take us and then where maybe it should or, or what poker needs to do to recapture the, the eyes and the hearts of, of the market. Yeah. Well, so, so all of that is an accurate depiction of what, what transpired. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly the poker companies themselves were buying airtime and producing reels and producing these shows. Yeah. Um, I think the challenge uh, from an advertising standpoint that poker always runs into is, um, you know, consumer laws, right? So, you know, just like cigarettes, uh, it belongs in a regulatory, uh, re regulated, uh, you know, part of the economy. And so there are some limitations to what you can and can't do. And so um, that just by definition reduces the, the, um, the reach of the ad. And so, um, for example, I mean, an easy example is you can't advertise uh, poker stars on ABC, you know, midday to the soap opera watching audience. Okay, I didn't know. Um, that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't believe so. A reader can uh, correct me, but um, it's been a while since I read into the laws. But I, I don't think you can do um, anything you want like that. Um, now, um, I think in terms of um, the nature of the message changing, yes, I, I think the nature of the messaging uh, needs to change and will change, which is if you think back to kind of the poker boom, um, you know, anyone can get rich doing this, you know, is a very much of a um, semi lottery like message. Yeah. Like, look at this person, you know, so, but I think the messaging over the years kind of naturally shifted. Um, and I'm not talking about kind of the skill base versus, um, luck-based, mm -hmm. um, which I think was a mistake too, by the way, um, mm -hmm. for all, all that's worth. Um, the whole Poker Player Alliance trying to be, um, differentiate poker into its own island and uh, separating itself from what really had momentum, which was overall gambling, kind yeah. of sp sports betting and, and the like. They should have just um, piggybacked on onto that much larger, um, heavily funded kind of effort. But anyways... Um, so I'm not talking about skill-based versus chance-based or anything of the sort. It's just kind of, um, instead of, you know, get rich quick kind of messaging, I think the messaging as you reach a more mainstream audience, um, has to be about leisure. Like why is poker better than fishing? Like, you know, it has to have a more, um, intrinsically kind of rewarding message into it versus materialistic extrinsically um you know feel feelable kind of you know what i mean it's like i know what you mean it, it strikes it it doesn't seem right to me just because of i don't know people you know people it's harder to do that's what you're um struggling with right now as i do which is it's it's the harder path to take, yeah. certainly, right? Yeah. The 
the way marketing works today is, um, you know, short attention span, in your face, right? Make a promise quickly, um, you know, capture them in your net and do your thing, you know? So that's not just in poker, but it's just in, you know, B2B, B2C, you know, B2B2C, everywhere. Yeah. But, um, but the thing is, if you believe the premise that the bulk of the growth and money uh, going forward is going to come from a generation of players who have high income, high net worth, high income, a lot of disposable income, mm-hmm. and the time, right? Yeah. And, and the, the time, and not from the young, you know, kid who's finished with school or working in year two of their, like, a job they hate. Um, if you b- believe that premise, that that audience is not looking to get rich. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, not in the same way, at yeah, least, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Most of them don't even buy lottery tickets. So um, that's a crowd that's more going to be affected by the messaging that comes from training sites more so than from mass media or you know what i mean or so is, like so do you think it's unique to poker like you would you recommend the same thing to a, an online sports book sports book i think um or maybe casino is a better analogy or you know yeah sports book i i'm not sure because uh i don't know about you or others but i i i bet and it makes the whole sp- sporting experience the view, viewing experience enhanced yeah um i'm not really trying to win money or get rich or anything uh with sports betting i'm just it's fun yeah. um it's the sweat um with poker like i think what lacks and what um is sort of there through the tournaments versus cash game is the leaderboarding yeah the the ranking the stature the reputation the the you know the whole saying uh, when you're leading a company and you've had you know employees and and people working for you. You've had a team. Mm-hmm. Um, money goes only so far, right? At the end of the day, money goes to a certain point, and then they need recognition. They need others to recognize them, to appreciate them for the the amount of toil and blood and sweat and effort they put into something. So, you know, half of it is paid for through monetary rewards the other half is through social rewards through recognition and poker because of its the way it functions is like it, it's the opposite you know you don't want people to know you're secretive you don't want people to so you sort of like miss out on this whole um behave behavior of like people getting deeper and deeper and more into it because of the whole um you know lack of gamification if you will Sure. Like, I've played in a few tournaments, not a lot, but um, I never thought of like, well, yeah, you know, if I win, uh, I win 200K. If I final table, it's, you know, 38K. You know, if right. I cash, I don't think that way, right? Um, I want to advance. I want to see myself get further this time than last time. I want to make day two. I want to make day three. I want to, you know, I want to finish ahead of, my best buddy like who i know i'm better than you know like you have these these um goals that need to uh be um given through dashboarding um and poker severely lacks dashboarding 
leaderboarding. So like if yeah. you go into, a, for example, here's a great, ex uh, I don't know if it's a great example, but if you look at a player card at a brick and mortar casino, yeah, um, it's awful, right? So it's not even like um, Las Vegas strip casinos where they have different color cards. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets the same card. And why do they all get, get, get a card? It's so that they can track your play and, you know, give you rate back. Yeah. So everyone's treated the same. When everyone's treated the same, there's just a limit to how interested one can get. I understand. So, yeah, yeah you have to, I think, tier those things. Um, and online sites, I think, did a great job of that uh, very early on through rewards and all that, which, again, Negreanu um, shit on. <laughs> um, I, I don't think I, I'm just um, half joking. I, I don't think uh, it was his decision to take away. Um, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. But but you know what I mean. It's um, I think I think poker needs to uh, incorporate that. Um, so it's not so much a um, you know contest between tournaments versus cash. It's more both. You know. Both should have as much um, um, leaderboarding. So, for example, like you have the Hendon mob, mm -hmm. and everybody tirelessly, year after year, they talk about just, oh, you don't know if they're a net lifetime winner. The, these don't count the buy ins. Sure. They just, I think, miss the point, right? Which is, you know, you go to any new poker player, like the minute they show up and their results show up there, they're so happy. They are, yeah. Yeah, they're so happy. A lot of them actually don't tell you how gleeful they are, but they're really happy. They're just ecstatic. And so it's the same concept that you can actually take through the player card in a live casino for, you know, for cash games. So you don't want them through the smartphone or an app, you don't want to show them kind of their like accruing lifetime losses or wins, mm -hmm. right? I think <laughs> that's the last <laughs> thing you want to do to retain customers. <laughs> I get it. Um, but there are other data sets that you can reveal to them that makes them feel um, like they're earning points. Yeah. Right. That Not just sense. for rate. Yeah. Rake back, which is like, you know, you can show them those, um, you know, how many, how many, you know, pots they've played, how many pots they've won. People like data when it comes to winning. Yeah. It doesn't really matter if they're net losing. Most people expect to lose. Um, uh, not the pros who are yeah, yeah. doing it for a living, but you know what I mean? And so I think those experimentations uh, are not happening because the the ideas are not being generated or they're dying on the grapevine. They're, they're, they're just being stamped out um, because too many people in the poker industry believe that nothing's you know broken so why fix it and a lot of these people who are employees um are not going to do lift a finger right they just want to save their salary and their job right. they're not going to rock the boat yeah so what has to happen is change has to come from the people um who are starting businesses even little ones change has to come from you know people like that so i love this trend of People who are, you, you know, who, who have been generating, you know, user-generated content, you know, like the Andrew Niemies of the world or whoever, Brad Owen, um, and they're getting more ambitious. They're, you know, going from how do I make uh, extra bucks 
to then they went through, oh, I could actually make a full-time living doing this, to now I think they're getting more ambitious. And so their voices are increasingly going to, over time, become less about me, 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 how do I make more money for myself through, you know, um, WT, uh, PT is going to pay me X number of dollars a year for yeah. being a mouthpiece or whatever. But soon they, they will be able to affect the decisions that W you know, t PT makes. And that's exciting if it happens. And so yeah. the more small businesses that can um, be created and, and supported, the better off I think everyone will be because those are the ones who are going to foster new ideas and actually experiment out of sometimes sheer desperation, out of, you know, curiosity. But yeah, these uh, incumbent um, legacy establishments that have been around for many decades, um, their owners are off like on a yacht. They don't care. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they don't care. They just get that, you know, quarterly and annual distributions of profit. Um, they just want things to stay where they are because they're getting older each year and they're going to die. So they're thinking more about death, not how to improve or grow poker. Yeah. And do you think the people who work for them, the general managers and the executives care? No, no, they're online um, giving head fakes and acting like they care, but you can see it in the actions. They don't budge. They don't change a thing. And so the um, poker players, um, of which the pros are probably just a small fraction, but the most vocal, the poker players right now are, aren't being vocal. They're, um, and I, you know, the only way you can change that is to make them feel like they should be heard yeah. that people will listen, you know? And I think that's where a training site, um, although it wasn't designed for that, it plays that role in a way because it, what, what does a training site do ultimately? It helps people be self-sustaining. It helps protect people by improving their, their game, improving their performance. It teaches them, right? Everything inside and outside the game. It, it uh, gives them confidence, right? Yeah. Knowledge, so that, you know, knowledgeable people talk, right? Uh, people who feel they're not knowledgeable are afraid to talk because they're afraid to be criticized and whatnot. And so poker training sites, in a way, kind of are, you know, creating a generation of these people that in the future will be the, the difference makers. Am I getting too excited, Phil? <laughs> no, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I get charged up. Yeah. You know, I go up and down. Um, and it takes effort sometimes not to get too down or too up. Sure. Um, I was always this way with uh, my startups too. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, the, the last chapter always ends up, you know, just like the business cycle, right? Yeah. Um, prosperity followed by a you know, deep downturn, followed by recovery, followed by transition into the next beginning of the next uh, business cycle. That's, that's how my emotions kind of run. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so um, for any uh, listeners of Phil's podcast, if I've ever upset you or, you know, triggered you, um, please give, give me a temporary pass and try me out for the long term um, because um, I don't mean to uh, upset people or or um, beat up on comments or anything like that. 
It's just um, sometimes I'm human. I'm in a bad mood. I'm stressed out or had a bad day. I see a really stupid um, take or I see a piece of shit behavior and I just can't help myself and I, I lash out. <laughs> no, you definitely uh, aren't afraid to say what you think. Yeah. 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 No, that's, I mean, it makes for a good, um, well, I, I follow you on Twitter. I mean, so I think it's a good quality and, you know, in addition to sharing knowledge that you, that you share opinions, um, I think it's one that I, uh, am a little bit envious of because I'm not, well, you can always create an account, Phil. That's true. That's true. Maybe you can I always have already. You, yeah. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm not a uh, fan of uh, zero hedge, but you know, zero hedge is run by multiple people. Oh, I right? didn't know that it's, actually. Yeah. It's a team of people now. Hmm. It started out, out as one. Uh, pseudonym but it now i forget how many they have but there are a lot of sites like this where you think it's one person but there are multiple people behind it and uh maybe rachel lee stinks has you know more than one person behind it maybe no, no one knows and <laughs> you know you can always right you can always ghostwrite. um you know people who read uh rachel lee's things um don't care uh i don't think really care about um you know who is this person they just care about what is written um yeah so in a way it's ironic right because um i'm sure you've seen it but there there are occasions when when um someone just comes into my timeline and just provokes me you know they just want to fight they just want to argue they want to win an argument yeah and my attitude is kind of like um the whole point of sharing is so that right people have um, you know, some of it resonates, some of it doesn't like, what are you trying to accomplish by arguing? Like I'm supposed to rewrite my life experience so that it fits your view of the world. It's like, you know, because I, you know, I'm not very philosophical, right. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm most, most of my tweets, the vast majority start off with, you know, this happened to me. This is what I did about it. Or, you should do it this way because this is why it works and I've lived it. Like, you know, it's very personal. Um, and so like, uh, I have a very low tolerance for people who try to come and pick fights or win arguments. It's like, you can win all the arguments. I kind of don't care. I just wake up and when I'm done with my routines and things I need to do, I just right away, whatever is on my mind. And, you know, some of it is, you know, starts by reading other stuff, but yeah. you know, a lot of it has nothing to do with anything. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I sometimes wish I, I would have more followers because there's a piece of me that says, um, you know, um, uh, I'm not getting feedback. Um, you know, have you noticed like, um, some people like will write something, really absurd or stupid and they get a lot of likes and oh, then yeah. that's how it goes yeah 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 and mine mine is oftentimes a you know just wow did two people read this well you're, you're did, well yeah. you're talking the thing is because of a lot of what you're saying is um kind of lived experience and um direct advice on on topics that you're well qualified to speak about um i think a lot of readers that people like to respond to opinions where their opinion, where they feel their opinion is just as valid or more valid 
Um, but when you're talking about, you know, here's how you, here, here's something you can do to make your company, whatever, to, to, to better yeah. the company. Most people reading don't think they know better. And it's not like, you know, it's not an opinion. I mean, it, it technically it could be an opinion, but it's not, it's not a take. Yeah, it's not really a take, but I, I didn't uh, think about it that way. So maybe I should write, uh, weave in some more opinions. I mean, you definitely um, get more engagement on opinions. Uh, because I do get more engagement on opinions. Like when I ask, like, what do you prefer to be called or something like that? Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. Yeah. You know, I, um, yeah, I feel like a fool for not having thought it, thought through it that way. But, um, yeah, I, I never, there are a lot of times like, you know, because I, 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 um, some of what I write, I know is kind of useless. Um, some of what I write, I'm proud of, like I, you know, pat myself on the back, like, Hey, you know, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but it like, you know, it just feels like no one reads it and everyone is like, wow, what a useless piece of crap this was. Like, why did I waste two minutes reading this garbage? Um, so I, I do sometimes uh, long for that um, feedback, but, um, you know, I discovered uh, a while ago that I'm just never going to get it because of the, the nature of who I am and, you know, the anonymity um, pushes a lot of people away. There, there are a lot of people who um, are secret kind of readers. Mm -hmm. Like you follow me overtly. There are a lot of people like you who, um, if you look at my, can we take a minute to talk about the profile of my followers or readers? Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you mind? I, I don't know. It may be boring to everyone, but me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so right now I think I have like 600 followers and um, I know most of them. Um, I know them, meaning I research them. Um, okay. I try to see what they write about, retweet, like, and kind of what they're interested in, their handle profile. Um, I would say about eh, like three out of four are poker enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. Most of the that group, they're not really pros. I'd say a vast majority are people who work for a living and play poker on the side to varying levels. Um, but um, portion of the poker um, playing kind of kind of population, maybe let's call it um, what's uh, 300 or so, maybe more. Um, so there, there are uh, well-recognized um, pros in there um, who, um, yeah, like Chance Corneth, Ike, I know it's one, you, um, Andrew Nimi, Brad Owen, a lot of people, um, even Johnny Vibes, who uh, I think two, three years ago I uh, attacked uh, for his markup and what have you. Uh, I've changed my mind on Johnny Vibes, by the way. I, I like him a lot. I think he's uh, shown through um, action that he's one of the, the good guys in poker. So I like Johnny a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyways, my point is, it's interesting to see who, who doesn't care um, and is purely interested in my writings versus there are a lot of people who send me DMs and, you know, oh, I, I can't follow you because you know you attack my friend or, or I'm close to this person and I don't want them to think you know 
Yeah. Um, I, um, you know, I'm a fan of your writing or anything. There, there's a lot of that. And so, um, it's, you know, it always makes me, um, understand and empathize, but also shake my head because one of the things that makes, um, poker so different from any other endeavor is that it really attracts and, um, keeps, uh, very independent minded people. Yeah. And so, although the community and kind of the friend group is needed to survive and right, you can't do it alone. You can't do anything alone in life, but the fact that people are so um, scared or worried about how they may uh, appear, you know, if I were to be able to sit down with them over a cup of coffee, I would say, um, you know, why does it matter? I, I promise you, you're overthinking things. They don't care. They're not going to dictate who you read, what you read, what you think. They're your friend. If they're your friend, they're your friend. And uh, if you really think I'm wrong and you're, you know, worried, um, you know, maybe you need to get new friends. You know, it's like, don't worry about it. And uh, so that's sad Yeah. to see because... Yeah, I've had to give a lot of private um, responses and kind of quote unquote support or, or help to people who had questions but were afraid to ask openly because maybe, you know, six months ago I called, you know, Kara Scott a moron or jerk or whatever. And, you know, Kara Scott's popular. So to be associated with anyone who could say anything otherwise is, you know, is. Um, you know, hurts their bottom line. Is that a true story uh, though? Care's care's pretty great. No, I'm just making things up. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we've covered a variety of topics. Um, I, I I really appreciate all your insight, and uh, it's been a fun conversation. <clears throat> um, I'm I'm especially I don't know eager to see as as you uh, I don't know give some more thought to getting more engagement on Twitter and, and your goals there, uh, perhaps some evolution. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll do a better job of, uh, you know, honestly, I, I think the reason I, I don't personally engage that much is because the, I'm not on, I'm not spending a lot of time on Twitter and the, I, I come back after like the two days of not being on Twitter and you've had like 12 threads and I can't keep up, <laughs> but when something, uh, I'll, so I, sh I should slow down, right? That's the well, message. For, for, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. For me personally, yeah, but but maybe not for everybody. Um, but I'll uh, I'll engage when uh, when I see something interesting. Uh, are there any any thoughts you want to leave uh, me with, or our viewers or listeners with before we go? No, I just hope uh, you know people um, keep sharing their views. Um, the more, the merrier. Um, you know. Um, uh, the visual I always bring up is, you know, rocks uh, need to slam against each other to get rounded and, and beautiful. So I hope more, more people, um, especially people who aren't the well-known names, kind of share more liberally, write more. And uh, I hope you and I also um, get a chance to have uh, more conversations down the road. Um, this, this was a, a, a lot more fun than I thought it'd be. Um, Good. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, it was actually uh, very fun. I thought it'd be interesting, but it, it actually turned out to be uh, 
you know, a lot, a lot more fun than I thought um, and interesting too. Cool. Well, thank, well, thank you again. Uh, I'm glad you had fun. I had fun too. And uh, I look forward to uh, talking in the future as well. Um, that's it. Well, uh, everybody watching and listening, thanks for, thanks for having me, Phil. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for sticking with us this long. Uh, hopefully you found it interesting and, uh, I will see you next time somewhere. Take care.